From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. In the first half of 2020, nearly a quarter of all the data breaches in Australia were from the health sector. And under Australian laws, any doctor who even inadvertently breaches patient data could cop a fine of up to $340,000, or their practice could cop a fine of up to $1.7 million. The problem is, there are sophisticated actors out there trying to trip up your systems and your staff all the time. In this episode, we're speaking with cybersecurity expert Troy Hunt to find out what you can do to protect yourself, your practice, and the privacy of your patients. Welcome, Troy Hunt. How are you today? G'day, Wendy. I'm good, thank you. Troy, would you like to introduce yourself for everyone? Sure. So I'm an Australian uh, information security guy, I think. Experts a little bit self-ingratiating. I, I do a lot of infosec <laughs> things, uh, so I do a lot of work with data breaches in particular, and uh, I, I run a, a very large data breach notification service with a lot of a lot of personal information in it. And I guess relevant to to this podcast as well. I spent fourteen years working for Pfizer uh, before my joyful life of independence. And you also called up to the U.S. Congress to explain to them some information. What was that about? Yes, I went to Congress a few years ago as well. So that was all around the impact of data breaches on knowledge-based authentication. So the, the premise there was that there is so much information about all of us leaked publicly that when you do KBA and, and knowledge-based authentication is questions like, uh, what school did you go to? What's your mother's maiden name? What's your date of birth? I mean, once you get to that sort of thing, you, you go beyond just information that might be leaked in data breaches. And it's like, it's on Facebook, you know, or LinkedIn by design. Yeah. So that the challenge we've got is because there's so much data leaked externally that now doing any form of, of KBA is, is increasingly difficult to have confidence in, in the, the veracity of it. So let's bring this down to a medical practice. Let's think of us a day in the life of medical practice, maybe four or five doctors. You might have maybe four staff members, some part-time, some full-time and a bunch of different software that that practice there'll be a patient management system there might be a separate booking system there might be a bunch of an email a website etc so a range of different digital footprints in use what are the ways that that practice can get hacked well, one of the things that we're really worried about at the moment, and, and this is something that, that certainly hits the, the healthcare industry a lot, uh, is things like ransomware. So the computer can be infected with a virus. Now, this this could come via an email, for example. That's, that's a pretty common one. It could be a dodgy link on a website. And usually by exploiting some weakness in the security posture of the client machines, of the PC you're using, it will go through and it will encrypt all your files and say, hey, if you would like to get your files back, please send, it's usually Bitcoin, please send Bitcoin to this address. Uh, and by the way, here's a really helpful customer service guide for how to go and buy Bitcoin if you've never done it before. <laughs> do they actually send a helpful guide, do they? Yeah, totally. There's even support people. It's like they do better support than a bunch of tech companies because it's a business, right? I mean, it's, okay, it's kind of funny on the one side in terms of thinking about these hackers on the other side of the world doing customer support. But on the other hand, because they are a business, they want to help people go and buy their Bitcoin so that they can get the private key and unlock their files. If someone is using a patient management system, so all of their patient data is locked up in the patient management system that has security protocols, et cetera, how at risk are they? 
if you have a modern operating system and you take your patches and your updates, and particularly if you're sitting in a in a fairly modern environment behind a decent firewall and a router, and you have a little bit of common sense about the things you click on, I'll, you know, I'll give you an example of the number of emails I see in my junk box just now when I was looking for missed emails, <laughs> the number of emails which have got like a a web page attachment which says here's your invoice, please click and open it. So that. Nothing about that sounds good at all. Yeah. So, so it is a bit of a combination of technical controls and human controls. So it's really a blend of the two. So we can't feel secure just because there's excellent security protocols in the software that we're using. That it's human error that allows access to. Those it's always both, right? And I, and I always think of it as like a shared responsibility. So if we pick something like passwords, a really good example. So the service that you're using should be resilient to someone coming along and trying to log into your account with an email address and a password, even the correct one. It should be resilient. It should know that this is not you. Uh, also, choose good passwords. <laughs> you know, don't use your dog's name and then you've used the same thing everywhere. So this is a bit of a case, again, of, of where there are technical controls that can limit things like account takeover attacks, but there are also human controls in terms of we can decide for ourselves what risk posture we'd like to have. Well, passwords is a good example. If you use weak, predictable passwords, you're going to increase your risk of someone getting into your account. Uh, if you generate strong, unique, random passwords, you're going to greatly decrease that likelihood. And then there, there are other controls in parallel to that. Uh, a lot of providers of, of online services these days do a lot more than just look at whether your password's correct. Uh, they'll look at things like, why is Troy logging in from... Moscow. You know, like he doesn't normally log in from Moscow. Maybe we should just make sure it really is Troy. So if you've got a perhaps a shared email, so say it's like lowerwongarumatology at gmail.com, and that's an email that three or four people use in the practice. What are the risks of that? Well, the, the problem you're starting to create there is that you now have multiple parties operating under the same identity. So, so things like being able to recreate who clicked what or what went wrong uh, if there is an incident later on. Now, these days, we've got much better mechanisms of giving email addresses to everybody such that it, think of it a little bit like uh, isolating your risk. It's like if you've got Joe and Fred and Mary all in the same practice and Mary gets compromised, well, okay, it's, we don't want Mary to be compromised, but it's just Mary. It's like Joe and Fred, to some extent, are still doing okay. So, yeah, the, the, the big risk we've got there is is a, a lack of isolation and, and then a, a much more difficult task uh, if we need to try and piece together what's happened again. So say we get sent an email to the practice um, and it's something that is accidentally clicked on because it looks like it's an invoice or something from somewhere official. Then what actually happens? Look, it really depends on what it's trying to do. So many of these emails are phishing attacks. So you'll click on a link and you'll go to a website and the website will say, please enter your Microsoft email address and password to re-authenticate to your account. Now, if you don't enter the username and password, generally nothing happens. If, if you do, well, now you've got a problem because that's now stored on someone else's server. Now, very often in, in information security, we talk about things like mitigating controls. So what can we do such that if something goes wrong, we've still got something else that can stop it from being even worse? So a good example of a mitigating control there is we'd say, use two-factor authentication. So not only do you need to have the email address and the password, but you've also got to, say, enter the code from the Authenticator app on your phone. 
So in a, in a case like that, if you're prepared for it, even clicking that link and going through and even possibly entering your username and password may not be particularly bad. When we talk about things like ransomware, we're talking about the machine itself being infected. So someone has to run software from an external source. Now we've got much better controls and things like modern Windows operating systems. You will get big warnings before executing programs that could make changes to your machine. But ultimately, it does come down to people making judgment decisions themselves. If you get big warnings and you click through them all and go, yeah, yeah, it's fine, just because someone sent you that cat video that you really want to watch you know, or something to that effect, you're still going to have a bad day. Uh, so it could, it could really just be someone in their downtime during a coffee break having a flick through and clicking on something that seems fine but then gets them into a lot of trouble. It, it can be, and that's where we sort of enter this really interesting space around social engineering. So a lot of phishing is social engineering. So how can we convince humans to do things that they wouldn't normally do? Uh, so social engineering exploits very well-known weaknesses uh, in our behaviours. So, uh, for example, curiosity. Uh, in the COVID era, there have been many phishing attacks which have taken the form of, hey, attached is a document of everyone who's got COVID at your place of work. And because we're all nosy, everyone's like, yeah, I'd really like to know that. <laughs> Let me just run the software. We see a lot of phishing attacks that take advantage of uh, hierarchy structures. So it might be uh, an email which pretends to be from the CEO. Uh, please transfer this money into this account immediately. I'm stuck somewhere. I can't get to my PC. Uh, please do it quickly. Uh, we see phishing attacks taking advantage of things like fear. Uh, uh, in fact, we see a lot of this in Australia at the moment. We get these phone calls all the time uh, saying, hey, uh, your tax is overdue. You need to call us back and pay this money, otherwise you're going to jail. <laughs> so all of this is exploiting vulnerabilities in people before we even start to talk about the technology side of things. How often does that happen in small practices, do you think? Like you can imagine that the big practices of big companies are being targeted, but what about just a small clinic, few doctors, few staff, surely they're not under fire. Every hour, every day. <laughs> Absolutely. And we know that healthcare industry is the number one targeted industry for hacking in Australia. Well, I mean, healthcare is a, is a really interesting target because, first of all, we do have, what, what do we have? Many thousands of practices, surely, spread across the country. Yeah. We've got professionals there who are extraordinarily good at what they do, but, you know, they're there to, like, fix people. <laughs> you know, they're not there to maintain PCs. Yeah. So very often we end up with infrastructure there, which does tend to get a little bit dated and a little bit poorly managed, and it, uh, it, it, it it's simply not maintain to the standard that we would probably have in in let's say a medium-sized enterprise um, and of course there's a lot of value as well in in particularly the availability services so ransomware is usually attacking availability how do we make sure that you can't get in and use your pc until you pay the money and then the, the problem we've got is often we can't just roll to backups because we don't have good backups of things and someone has to sit there and go do we potentially lose our customer data and do we potentially lose several days of work or do we pay the $1,000 that someone is asking for in Bitcoin and, and just get on with our job? So even if it was a smaller practice, a couple of thousand dollars, okay, I can afford that. What other effort would I need to go to as a practice manager to sort this mess out? Well, ideally, we'd like to be proactive about it. And there's sort of several things we can do well in advance of all of this. Uh, so we, we mentioned earlier on here, keeping software up to date. Now then, of course, moving on to things like being cautious about links, we've covered all of that. But the big one for ransomware as well 
is just having good backups. If your files get encrypted, but you can go and grab a backup from yesterday and restore those, let's say you lose a day on the restore process. Yeah, it's, it's not terrible. You can at least roll back. One of the big problems, though, that we tend to have with, with backups is the ability to restore. So backing up is one thing, but can you actually restore the backup? I, I remember, and this is a true story, I was sitting in a dentist <laughs> a few years ago, and there was uh, the, the computer guy. Let's call him the computer guy. He was there. Uh, and he was being told about how the files were all locked and ransomed. And he went to the cupboard and he looked at the backup device and he said, you know, this is not turned on, right? And I could just see like everyone in the dental surgery was just like, oh, crap, like what are we going to do now? So this is one of the big problems. But we're also having, a, having a, a, I guess, a bit of an evolution in ransomware and that it's not just attacks against availability where files get encrypted, but increasingly we're seeing things like attacks against uh, confidentiality. So what happens if someone else takes a copy of your files? So imagine everything you can access on your machine and then someone else has that and they say, give us money or we're going to leak it publicly. Imagine what that means for a healthcare practitioner. Yeah, it's fairly damning, really. Well, I mean, it's probably the worst example of this, which we've seen was a psychotherapy service in Finland. There's a company called Vastamo. And late last year, they had their data ransomed but a copy of it taken as well. And they ended up leaking, I think it was about 15,000 patients in there, leaked their psychotherapy records. So imagine particularly vulnerable people going for psychotherapy services and all of the, the notes which their practitioner's taken and they've gone into an electronic system and then they've been leaked and they're all over the internet now. So if we were to say what are the top tips for a practice manager, for making sure that you're sorted, protected from cyber attacks, hacking, ransomware. What would be your top tips, Troy? Okay, so number one, keep software up to date. So make sure that your Windows PCs are updating or your Macs or your iOS devices, all of these things, keep them up to date. Now, that's the number one thing there. Number two is, is think about backup strategy. So whether we're talking about ransomware or whether we're talking about the entire building burning down or perhaps more likely someone just coming in and stealing all the computers, what's your backup strategy? How do you roll back? Uh, and very importantly as well, can you roll back to a point in time because there's no good backing up all your encrypted files or all your good files. So that's very important too. And then some of the real fundamentals, a lot of data breaches happen due to things like weak passwords. So are people actually creating strong passwords? Do you have a password manager or are people trying to use their brains to remember strong and unique passwords? And that always, always <laughs> leads to very predictable results. Which password um, manager do you recommend? So I use one called 1Password. So it's just full disclosure, I'm on 1Password's board. So I do have a little bit of a bias <laughs> here, but... Uh, I have been a, a very happy user of it since long before then too. So I've been using it for more than a decade now. Uh, and I'm a bit exceptional, but I have nearly a thousand passwords for different services on there. And Ooh. when you consider how many different places you have to sign up to, you're going to have a lot of different passwords. And of course, what most people do is they have one, two or three passwords and they use them everywhere. And then one service gets breached and then that's now effectively the skeleton key into your digital life. So having a password manager that can create genuinely unique, strong passwords is a really, really big one. And then also things like multi-factor authentication. We often refer to that as 2FA or two-factor authentication. 
So making sure that it's not just a username and a password you need to log in, but at worst, you also have to get an SMS. There are some risks with SMS, uh, but you might have a soft token. So you might have an authenticator app like Authy or Google Authenticator on your phone. Okay, up to date, have a backup strategy. Go cloud where you can. Use a password manager and maybe multi-factor authentication. What about training staff? How much doesn't happen? Well, look, I think one of the more effective ways of doing training is there are a lot of programs out there that look at continuous cybersecurity training. So, for example, at various times throughout the year, they'll send a a simulated phishing email to everyone in the organisation, and that might just be half a dozen people in a small practice. But every now and then there'll be an email come through and then it will track how many people open it, how many people click the link, how many people might actually enter a username password into the phishing page. And the great thing about that is it's like anywhere, anytime, (laughs) you could be fished. (laughs) (laughs) And those who who perhaps don't do such a good job of spotting the fish, then they can uh, have a little bit of extra attention uh, in order to try and help them avoid something that might actually be quite nasty. Oh, excellent. And so you can sign up for this kind of a service, basically. Yeah, there are a bunch of different services online which which do that, and and some of them then tie into broader uh, info security style programs as well. But I, look, I do like the idea of training, and I particularly like the idea of continuous training in one way or another, as opposed to just this annual box ticking exercise. Yeah, even if it's something that's discussed about discussed in meetings, brought up, reminding people, etc. Yeah, look, exactly. Make it topical. And there is something in the news every single day about this. We've seen a lot of the news lately around things like attacks against critical infrastructure. Uh, you know, like this is a really, really in-your-face topic at the moment. So I'm quite sure that everyone has exposure to it. And I think every opportunity you have to remind people of, of the risks is, is a positive thing. And I think with the, the requirement for any breaches to be reported under our 1988 Privacy Act in Australia, it's really on practice managers to be on top of this because the, the, the cost, the financial cost and the implications for patient privacy is pretty high. Yeah, I guess it's probably a little bit like what, what many of the listeners would probably tell their own customers slash patients in that prevention is better than cure. That is great. Thanks so much, Troy. really appreciate your time. My pleasure. cybersecurity expert Troy Hunt and you've been listening to The Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your favourite podcast player and leave us a review if you like. And if you've got any news tips or just want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. But for the latest news and views about general practice, check out the Medical Republic magazine or our digital newsroom at medicalrepublic.com.au. I'm Wendy John. Thanks again for listening.